Are scientists doomed to stay in the lab for the rest of our lives? Five jobs scientists can do working from home. Can your employer legally force you to come into the office? It will feed the hydra that's inside the vaccinated. Conspiracy theories, a scientist reacts. That's me. And I'm constantly being told that I'm full of nonsense and I need to be educated and I've got to stop spreading lies. The views expressed in this podcast, my own thoughts and opinions, they do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne Podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist, college professor who talks about science, technology, and productivity and how all of these themes tie in to inform us about the jobs of the future. In my day job, I do career counseling and I've spoken to over a thousand students at various stages of their studies, as well as many prospective high school students. The first and most common question I'm asked, do scientists get stuck in a lab for the rest of their lives? This is a bit of a stereotype. No one forces scientists to be in the lab. We are not trapped there against our will. Anyone who is in a lab needs to be covered by insurance. If you don't want to be in there, it's way cheaper for the lab or for the employer to say, look, just leave because you are costing us a lot of money just by being in this environment. And if you don't enjoy the lab environment, you can still contribute to science in many different ways. This article is from wide and this is a time capsule of what was happening during 2020 when many places weren't allowing people to go physically into work and there were all these social isolation rules that were happening and this wide article really highlights the remarkable stuff scientists get done as they work from home let's go through five jobs or tasks scientists can do physically away from the lab or they can do it remotely starting with five data analysis you collect all of the data and it is sitting in a spreadsheet and you can work on this on your computer at home or on a laptop, wherever. You don't have to be physically in a lab to do this. And that is a period of time, let's say a couple of weeks or a month, where you are very focused and intense in a lab. All that data has been collected, then you move on to the analytical phase, which then takes maybe a week or two location independent. You can go to a conference, you can travel overseas and still work on that data without having to physically be in a lab. Scientists who don't spend enough time analyzing that data and just think I need to collect more and more data all the time, they're actually wasting a lot of mental and physical energy because it's the analytical phase that will inform you what the next step should be. And that is a much more iterative and productive way of working in science, not linear. It should be lab experiment, look at the data, reevaluate, tweak a few things, try the lab experiment slightly differently again, optimize. So it should be cyclical rather than linear. During the pandemic, during 2020, there were many famous examples of scientists still doing great analysis offsite. For instance, this story highlights a scientist Coralie Adams, who was watching her spacecraft approach a rocky asteroid 140 million miles from Earth. They were doing this mission control from home. Number four, we can write. So much of the scientific pursuit relies upon communicating and disseminating the information to a broader audience. And that is part of the reason I'm doing this podcast, part of the reason I'm doing this video series on YouTube is to talk about science to the general public to some mixed results, I have to say. I'm going to touch back on this later on. If you do the experiment, but no one knows the result, you may as well not have done the experiment. During the pandemic, when people were forced to not be physically present in a lab, over 13,000 papers were written around COVID-19 research and over 3,000 preprints related to COVID-19 research have been shared. If you get things written, you can do it anywhere. I don't have to be in the office to do that. I don't have to be in a lab. This is not just writing research papers. There are many different types of writing related to science. For example, you could be a technical writer, the manuals and instructions for scientific equipment, writing sales copy for scientific companies trying to sell 
drugs or sell equipment or sell procedures. Not to mention if you are an editor of a research journal and you're going through reading all of these people's research article submissions and vetting the process of peer review where multiple scientists in the field or who my experts help judge the quality of a manuscript, this can all be very much done remotely. Number three, clinical research associate or coordinating clinical research. With clinical trials that had to happen with lots of human participants, the actual trial itself, once it's up and running, the patients have all signed up, they know where to go, the drugs have all been ordered, collecting samples and doing the tests is very procedural, it is following a recipe, but to get it to that stage requires months if not years of planning by people who work in roles called in Australia clinical research associates or clinical trials coordinators, you're doing a lot of administrative coordination, you're doing a lot of paperwork, you're writing ethics applications for animal research, you're also talking to clinicians, talking to doctors, then talking to hospitals and coordinating with the research group. All of this liaising across multiple sites, different hospitals, different states, different locations and different labs can all really be most effectively done away from a lab environment because you need good communication, you need a good computer, you need access to all the files, you need to be able to hop on a Zoom call very quickly to talk to all these different people in different locations. Clinical trials coordinators, they often don't work in a lab full time. They may be two or three days in a lab and the rest of the time they're trying to manage all of this paperwork because once that clinical trial is ready to go and you've recruited all of these participants, could be 50 participants or could be thousands of participants, that needs to be airtight. So when the trial actually starts, the people running the trial are just following very well thought out and planned out protocols. And you can't actually do all of that planning if you're in the lab the whole time. What else can scientists do that's not in a lab? Number two, computational science or coding. If you're developing an algorithm, making a new program or a new user interface for some type of program that other scientists will use, all of this can be done remotely because it's based at a computer. I will concede that for computer scientists who work with data sets that can be done using machines, sure, they can do this remotely even more readily than other branches of science. In my field of biology, the people who work in computational science and work in bioinformatics, they still need access to wet labs and people who work in wet labs because they're working with the experimental flocks and tubes and cells that would then generate the data that can feed to those people who work in genomics, who work in bioinformatics. The two go hand in hand. But if you're not a fan of being stuck in a lab, consider using computer science and applying that toolkit towards the most complex data set man has ever known, and that is biology. So that is yet another job, the number two job that you don't have to be physically in a lab to do. And the number one job that scientists can do when they're not physically in a lab is teaching. This video on YouTube or this podcast that you're listening to hopefully is a testament to that. Educating people about science and communicating about the different misconceptions people may have about science entirely online, entirely from my home. I'm not physically in a lab right now. Most of the videos on my channel, I'm not physically based in a lab. Not to mention once you become a college professor, let's say, and you start teaching science, most of those classes happen in lecture theaters or in small rooms. They are not physically in the lab either. All of these scientists are trying to run back from these teaching classrooms into the lab to get more of their experiments done. So they're not trying to run away from the lab. They're actually trying to spend even more time in the lab than their schedule would allow. So again, I reiterate, although there are five jobs I've just talked about that scientists can do when they're not physically in a lab, most scientists are desperate 
clamoring to get back into the lab because that is where they will make the next breakthrough and it's very exciting to be in that environment. The fact that this question is the most common question I'm asked, if I'm a scientist, do I get stuck in a lab for the rest of my life? That speaks a little to the fear people have about autonomy in their work, about feeling a certain amount of flexibility, certain amount of freedom in choosing the type of work you do and where you might be able to do it. I could say the same thing about, hey, I don't want to be stuck in an office for the rest of my life. Feeling stuck I guess is the main anxiety, not necessarily stuck in a specific location. No one wants to feel like they're not moving upwards and they don't have choice and flexibility in their careers. The biggest question in all of the social media trends I've seen about people's anxiety regarding work, the fact that working from home is becoming less and less normal. And there is no bigger headline that indicates this than this article from the BBC where Zoom, the company that allowed all of us to talk on the internet using teleconferencing very efficiently for the last several years, Zoom is now ordering workers back to the office. If Zoom is saying remote work is not to their taste, that kind of gives the signal and plants a flag on the ground. No company really has to offer remote work policy if even Zoom is moving away from that option. This has been one of the biggest gripes that I've seen for everyone who talks about work on any kind of online platform. Every employer is saying remote work is the death of productivity. Every worker is saying, if I can just have that little less time commuting, if I can just a bit more freedom, I can be just as productive at home as I am in the office. So why is this tension arising again and again? This idea of the in-person workplace being so much better than remote work is a little lost on young people, on millennials, on Gen Z, because they just don't have that much choice. They often are on the lowest rung in the workplace hierarchy, and they don't really get a say about whether they can come to work or they can work from home. Parents who have kids, who have other responsibilities, or maybe they've got to look after their own parents. Working from home is a very, very big plus to our productivity because we have developed the cachet to drive our own to-do list at work. And we can do that very effectively at home online. We know how to be self-directed drivers of our own autonomous working conditions. If you're a young person though, I think this is very dicey. You need to be seen rightly or wrongly as kind of the first person in and the last person to leave. You're just an unknown quantity. People just see you and think you're very young or very inexperienced. If you're not physically there, no one knows your value. No one knows what your output is. And it is very difficult for you to move ahead. The bosses in all these companies, they are still from an older generation where remote work is not a thing that they equate with productivity. If they don't see you, they don't put a face to the name, you will not be perceived as someone that's very valuable to the company and you will hit a ceiling in your current role sooner rather than later. Irrespective of perceptions, can your employer actually force you to come back into the office whether you like it or not? This article from the ABC goes to this exact topic, can Australian employers stop you working from home? Here's what the law says. Whether you are employed permanently as a casual or on a short-term contract in Australia, you are required to follow lawful and reasonable directions from your employer. Even if this isn't stated specifically anywhere, in Australia, our courts have ruled this requirement is implied in every employment contract. The question then becomes, is coming back to work in a physical space lawful 
and reasonable. Let's say another quarantine measure comes down and forces social isolation and your employer still forces you to come back into the office. That is not lawful, nor is it reasonable. If you can perform your role at home and have a legitimate reason to do so, let's say you're sick or you've got a lot of mobility issues, then you may have grounds to argue that returning to the office, while it is lawful, it is not reasonable. Failing to comply with this direction can be a valid reason to dismiss you or fire you. So sadly, in Australia, if your employer forces you to come into work physically, you have to comply with that direction. So that is not a very satisfying response. If you're a new graduate looking for work, you're finding out that the employer has all the power in these arrangements and flexibility is just a bit of a myth. And this is exacerbated by the fact that the cost of living certainly in Australia is going up and up. So amidst all of this financial pressure, amidst all of this lack of power in negotiating different working arrangements, it comes back to being good enough at your job to leverage and negotiate the right type of role in the right type of environment for yourself. And it comes back to good old communication skills at the end of the day. This is the skill set that will help you leverage and negotiate the next role up that hierarchy where eventually you get to decide what kind of job you do and where you do it. So we're gonna cover two types of communication skills you can develop, both for face-to-face -face jobs as well as for working remotely. Let's start with the classic returning to face-to-face -face work, and that is doing well in a job interview. And this article is from CNBC, which is a really good resource. This is the best answer I've ever received to tell me about yourself after 20 years of interviewing. The first question in many of these job interviews is tell me about yourself. And that is a wide open question that you can answer in a number of ways. It is also an invitation to really put as much into the answer as possible, as opposed to making it very vague and open-ended. This article comes from a recruiter who worked in the world's largest executive search firm who's conducted thousands of interviews over the past 20 years. And the best and most memorable answer this person has ever received to the question, tell me about yourself. I've climbed the highest mountains on every continent, including Everest. Not everyone is going to have to climb Mount Everest to land the most basic of entry-level positions. But that answer does reveal a little something about the approach of these search firms in trying to find applicants that stand out because you will have to stand out if you've agreed to come in for an interview, assuming that it's not an interview conducted by AI. This is a real face-to-face, in-person way of making an impression. To reveal something personal about you that doesn't necessarily fit so well on a CV. Intangibles, these soft skills. Too many people respond to tell me about yourself by reciting their resume. This candidate shows something beyond what is on the page. That is the chance of the face-to-face -face interview. Everything you're saying is already on the CV. Why just repeat it without more context? The Mount Everest example doesn't just show that they are a risk taker or they like climbing mountains. It revealed that they were adventurous, curious, goal oriented and disciplined, and also had the ability to apply lessons learned from past experiences to new challenges. The follow-up question is another part of the interview that throws a lot of people off. There's the first question, which you might expect, but there's a follow-up based on your answer. You have to explain a little bit more about why you answered the question the way you did. So I always like to prepare for interviews with two tiers. The first tier is the question that sets up the follow-up and you already have a follow-up answer ready to go. If your response to the first question is a dead end or is a yes, no 
kind of answer, you won't be able to predict what the follow-up question the interviewer asks is going to be. The follow-up question to tell me about yourself and, oh, I climbed Mount Everest and the highest mountains in the world, the first thought that ran through your head upon reaching the summit of Mount Everest. This is a bit of a tricky question because you could show off and be a bit of egotistical narcissist there and say, well, look, no one else has done it. I'm the best. She laughed and said, how the heck am I going to get down? And it showed her ability to engage with others with humor and humility. So you're showing these intangible communication skills in the face-to-face -face job interview is a very specific skill set that most of us don't have. Be memorable. You don't need to be a world-class mountaineer to stand out in a job interview. But what you can do is take a risk to get personal. Instead of showing off all the work projects you've been involved with, again, that should be on your CV, you should share a sh short anecdote, personal information that will allow the interview to know something about your life outside of work. But hopefully that is something that ties directly into an attribute that you use in your work all the time. The example I give would be outside of my work, I'm a YouTuber and podcaster. Hey, I need to communicate and teach online to students all across the world. So being a YouTuber in my spare time, doing a podcast gives me practice at communicating using these digital media and that allows me to be much more effective. Don't be boring. Hey, that's easier said than done. Everyone thinks they're very interesting, but actually a lot of the stuff is very boring. And I think answering that question of boredom is really variable. It depends on your audience. If you're interviewing for an accounting firm, that's a very different audience than interviewing for a creative ad agency. Their tolerance for the mundane, let's say, is very different in those different fields. So I think the key to overcome that hurdle of boredom is two things. You have to show your purpose and passion and to be able to answer the question indirectly, why do you get up every morning? Not only does it have to demonstrate your purpose and passion, you have to be authentic. Don't tell the employees the answer you think they want to hear. Be authentic to you. You have to have that purpose and have that passion. It may not be your dream job forever, but you know exactly why you're applying for this job at this point in time. And that in itself shows you're self-aware, another really important soft skill when applying for jobs. The other skill that is also communication related that is not tied to a face-to-face -face interview is highlighted in the next article. And it talks about the idea of a digital visual resume. All of those months, and years spent working from home are not in vain. Hopefully you spend that time developing technology skills that allow you to present information in different visual media. So that skill set translates into the job hunt as well. Most CVs, it is much of a muchness. It is a list of your qualifications, a list of your previous work location. But if you use digital visual tools to create a unique value proposition for your CV, this is something that makes you stand out and again ties back to communication. Although if the company you're working for uses technology and AI to screen resumes, then your resume, because it's not in the same format that the AI will accept, will just get rejected automatically. So again, if I use that example, if you're applying for a job at a big accounting firm, I'm almost certain their recruitment happens through AI and your CV needs to be mostly text-based. But if you're applying for work in a creative ad agency, or if you're a graphic designer, or if you're a photographer, you're applying for these jobs, having digital visual elements in your resume is almost essential to stand out in those sectors and stand out in those arenas. It gives the employer more stuff to know about you than what you would write on the resume and you can show them what you do. But if you're a very large business with thousands and thousands of resumes to go through, the automation really filters the text for you. So what you don't want is a resume that doesn't fit into that template and it fools your system. What kind of skills 
would let you make digital visual resumes really effectively. One would be a bit of graphic design. I think that's really good. Making sure there's enough white space on your CV, maybe having a good graphic, a good logo, all of that is very easy to find on YouTube. You can really do that in PowerPoint very effectively. The baked in shapes and animations in PowerPoint look way slicker these days. 10 years ago, if you're using the standard stock Microsoft Office tools, you look like a kid playing with Microsoft Paint. Now, even the basic templates, they look relatively sophisticated. If you wanna go out and make a full video, I think the key with the video is not so much the camera you're using, it is how much editing you've done for that video. So learn the editing program before you learn how to film anything other than your phone. The phone is actually a very powerful camera. If you bought a phone in the last three years, the video camera on that phone is likely to be better than any camera that you can buy for under $1,000. The quality of the footage will look pretty similar don't go crazy with the sound effects or the music. Just make sure you can hear the audio volume well. Show that it's a tight one minute, two minute video. You have the ability to extract the most important information and highlight it and you can edit your own work. That is a super valuable skill that will hold you in good stead as you approach the next phase of your career to try and negotiate a better job on your long career development trajectory. To finish off this episode, I want to conclude this second season of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne Podcast in our recurring segment, The Connect. But in particular, I'm going to look at comments revolving around your conspiracy theories. I'm very grateful to all of you who take the time to leave comments, even if they are really quite crazy. The first couple are around my episode about lab-grown meat at user-xc8nt6iz7y. I'm not sure if you're a bot. The new meaning of canned goods has struck an all-time low. This product is not fit for human consumption. Some animals won't eat it. Flies, mosquitoes won't eat it. Dogs or cats will make it so bad. No one in Washington is eating it. No one in the Senate is eating it. No one in Congress is eating it. Start looking around you. No flies at McDonald's. No flies in Burger King. No flies in Captain D's. Do you see stray animals hanging around these places? Something is real wrong with this picture. This is a really full-on answer. I'm not sure it's a conspiracy theory necessarily, but certainly leaning that way a little bit. Is lab-grown meat not even fit for flies in McDonald's? Most McDonald's are actually pretty clean. This is a bit of a myth because the people who are making lab-grown meat, they let people taste it and it tastes pretty normal. It still tastes like chicken, it looked white. If you were to give it to people in a burger, you didn't tell them it was lab-grown meat, I think most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. The long-term effects of this category of meat is not known because it just hasn't been around for long enough. When you break it down at the molecular level, it is just amino acids and we have amino acids in all of our bodies. So safety isn't so much my concern. If you really want to push on the fact that it may not be so safe, there are so many things in the world that aren't safe that people are perfectly willing to try every single day. There are many other types of processed meats that we can buy infused with chemicals to preserve it for the long run. Red meat has a very strong correlation with heart disease, but people eat red meat every single day. They have no problem with it, but we very clearly know it has a very strong link to heart disease. People don't care about safety if they really want it. I think they're really talking about a different argument and that they're scared of something that's new. That's perfectly okay. I don't think it's going to be successful, but it's not because it's not safe. It's because people will be scared of it. People People like user XE8NT6IZ7Y, they are terrified of lab-grown meat. The next comment is also around lab-grown meat, and this comes courtesy of Free Your Mind 2261. Lab-grown meat is grown from human cancer cells, not animal cells. Cancer cells reproduce at a very fast pace, and that's the only way they can do this. Please stop spreading the lies that they're growing with animal cells. Also, they know that most people won't eat this garbage unless they were starving, which is what they intend to do. Starve out the people 
people and offer them lab-grown meat as the only alternative, this will start out the zombie apocalypse because these lab-grown meats will feed the hydra that's inside the vaccinated. There's a lot going on here. It's really tempting to be antagonistic in, in my response. I have multiple degrees in cell biology. I've worked as a scientist for 15 years and I'm constantly being told that I'm full of nonsense and I need to be educated and I've got to stop spreading lies about my field of expertise. Hopefully you can relate, especially if you're a scientist. This is somewhat frustrating, but we do have to humble ourselves and realize that most people have no idea what goes into scientific training. It is a black box. It is very hard to explain how you learn about science and become a scientist. So we can't hold that against the general public. Cancer cells reproduce at a very fast pace. That's the only way they can make lab-grown meat. That's true. Cancer cells grow at a very fast pace, but any cell can grow at a fast pace if you provide them the right growth conditions. You give them the right growth factors, the right nutrients. We can literally reprogram cells to grow very, very fast. So this is a bit of a myth. People won't eat this garbage unless they're starving. Well, again, as I said, it tastes very similar to other meat, but people are scared of it because it's new. Whether people will be starving before they offer them lab-grown meat is not a economic model that works because lab-grown meat is way more expensive than animals. It is way, way more expensive currently. The fact that they're going to starve people and then give them a much more expensive meat to eat, that just doesn't make any sense. No one's going to make money from that model. This will start out the zombie apocalypse because these lab-grown meats will feed the hydra that's inside the vaccinated. There is no biological agent that can reanimate the dead. Once the brain signal dies, it is dead for good. You can't reanimate the dead. The Hydra that's the vaccinated, is that a reference to Captain America? I'm a fan of those movies from Marvel. There is no Hydra that's hiding inside the vaccinated. The vaccine is usually just a part of the germ that is designed to teach your body how to protect itself next time it comes into contact with that germ. People think that there are microchips inside vaccines that once they eject it, the government can start controlling you through these vaccine mandate programs, a vaccine and jab it into your arm. The gauge of that needle is smaller than the smallest microchip that man has discovered up to this point. Physically, it is not possible to insert a microchip using the needle that you get for a vaccine. This is all very unlikely. I'm not sure if this is a mistake, but I really do try and respond to every comment on the channel because I think it's a great exercise for me to develop science communication skills. There is a point of diminishing returns and engaging with conspiracy theories, but I do like to thank the user Free Your Mind 2261 for taking the time to engage in these videos. The last uh, conspiracy theory comes from my last episode, Deadly Mushrooms and the Five Most Deadly Poisons in the World. It comes courtesy of a user, someone in the comments, saying no one has the ability to discern an edible mushroom from a toxic mushroom is just incorrect. Plenty of cultures forage mushrooms safely, but we live in a mycophobic culture where mushrooms have been demonized. Mushrooms are amazing organisms and can be highly beneficial to humans. Reishi and cordyceps for example. I agree with this comment in many respects and I did respond to this user multiple times. Of course people have the ability to discern an edible mushroom from a poisonous mushroom. Otherwise how do these mushrooms appear in the supermarket for any of us to buy? The question is going to be how you discern it. Is it just a visually or is it by running lab tests? Because running lab tests is the only definitive and reproducible way of telling apart a poisonous mushroom from an edible mushroom that's very innocuous. The visual test that you do, even the world's foremost experts on a bad day won't be able to tell that apart. And that is a huge risk. The reward for getting that decision right is a more delicious meal. The risk of that is you literally die. So I don't think the risk reward ratio is in the right direction. Definitely mushrooms 
can have healthy benefits for us. And yes, there are cultures that forage mushrooms safely, especially if they live in parts of the world where the dangerous mushrooms are not enriched and there are more edible mushrooms available. But in Australia, in Victoria, the death cap mushroom is so common and looks so similar to other types of edible mushrooms that the general health advice has to be it is not worth the risk for normal people for everyday people to go out there and pick their own mushrooms i'm a microbiologist so i work with people who work with fungi these are mycology experts they look at fungi all the time even they do not go out collecting mushrooms in the wild they buy them from the supermarket it is just not reliable enough to visual test means go for it if you want to take the gamble but i am very conservative i don't want to take that risk i think that's enough conspiracy theories for one episode and for the whole season. I don't know if you enjoyed the weekly release schedule, so some feedback via the comments below would be absolutely wonderful. Thank you for listening and watching. My name is Jack. See you next time around.